For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Song of the Grasshot. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived and covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In ten feet square, an old man illumines forms in their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt the middling or lowly can't help wondering will this hut perish or not perishable or not the original master is present not dwelling south or north east or west firmly based in steadiness it can't be surpassed a shining window below the green pines jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it just sitting with head covered all things are at rest thus this mountain monk doesn't understand at all living here he no longer works to get free who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests turn around the light to shine within then just return the vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from meet the ancestral teachers be familiar with their instructions bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up let go of hundreds of years and relax completely open your hands and walk innocent Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from the skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the song of the grass hut. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, 
Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita. Um, good evening, everybody. I, um, I'd like to welcome you all, uh, being able to see your face, but I've got this kind of peculiar apparatus set up, and somehow, with a phone and a, a laptop, laptop, and I don't seem to be able to bring up the gallery, so I don't, I'm sorry, I don't actually know who's here. Strange. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll fiddle with that <laughs> when we get come, when we come to the, uh, uh, discussion. Uh, again, good evening, human beings. Um, this title, the, this talk is going to be, I think we, Tiger and I tentatively titled it Walking as Practice. And, and now I'm kind of thinking about it more as like an apology for walking, an apology in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, the Plato's uh, apology that he wrote, the dialogue regarding Socrates, an explanation, an exploration, justification, all those kinds of things. But whatever, I emphasize that the, the topic is walking. Um, it's not the Diamond Sutra. It's not the Mountains and Waters Sutra. It's not uh, Gary Snyder's book, The Practice of the Wild. Um, but I'm going to mention all of these things as a way of setting up what I want to say, but don't, don't be waiting for me to, to discuss these incredibly rich texts. Um, uh, they will come up now and again, but they're not the primary talk topic. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I imagine most of you, many of you have read the diamond sutra and you will recall that it opens with the, the Buddha um, rising in the morning and putting on his robes and going out to collect alms and then uh, coming back and eating and folding up his robe and putting it away, putting away his bowl and sitting down. And uh, the text then says that he's bringing his attention. He brings his attention to that, which is, before him. Um, 
So this is this is a kind of a standard classic kind of opening for a sutra. Um, not so much the anything there that would identify it as as a Prajnaparamita Sutra, anything like that. Um, that unfolds in the text itself, um, which again, not unusually, begins with questions. And uh, the first question. Oh, now my computer's frozen. Interesting. We can still um, see and hear you, though. Okay, um, but I need to see my notes. You're seeing me through my phone. Okay, this should work. Um, the first question that is actually asked goes like this. It's asked by Sabuti. Um you know, the Arhats of Bhutti. And it's, it's actually, it's important to note this because this text, it, you know, it's an early Mahayana Prajnaparamita text. And, uh, and all I say, it's important to note, uh, even though, um, Subhuti, as an Arhat asks the question, he's asking the question from the position of a Shravaka. And, you know, the Buddha answers it in a very Mahayana way. And so it's not necessarily, you know, part of the beauty and mystery of the text is, you know, trying to understand how these things kind of work. Um, but anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to address, uh, or at least think about Subhuti's question kind of in the terms in which he poses it. Um, um, not, in other words, not from the perspective of perfect enlightenment. All right. Um, the question is this, Bhagavan, if a noble son or daughter should set forth on the Bodhisattva path, how should they stand? How should they walk? And how should they control their thoughts? Um, you can sort of see, you can, you know, look at the sutras uh, and see what the Buddha does with that. It's quite interesting. Um, but it, the question is very straightforward. How do we, how do we stand? How do we walk? How do we control our thoughts? And I think it's okay to say that um, implicit in this contrast um, between the two parts of the question, control thoughts, this is a very kind of Shravaka kind of question, perhaps. Um, but it, anyway, it highlights the two, two aspects of practice, I think. You know, there's the actual, I think Subhuti here is thinking about meditation, controlling one's thoughts. And then he's thinking about everything else um, that we do in our lives, which in a very fundamental way is standing, walking, sitting, and lying down. Um, and there's no doubt here, even though that it, he, he mentions only uh, standing and walking, he means the whole, that whole list that we're familiar with from like the Metta Sutta. Um, and in fact, it's when it kind of reappears towards the end, they're all spelled out. So, so don't get hung up on that point. Um, Um, okay, there's also a piece, a, quite a beautiful, interesting piece in this book that I mentioned, uh, The Practice of the Wild by Gary Snyder. Uh, it's called Blue Mountains Constantly Walking. Um, this is a phrase from, originally taken uh, by Dogen uh, to a kind of, it's a springboard for uh, Sansvi Kyo, Mountains and Water Sutra. Um, 
which is uh, the ostensible subject of, of, of Snyder's essay, but um, which he describes as astonishing. It is an astonishing. Suikyo is astonishing. Please read it if you haven't. Um, uh, but even given that, you know, uh, the essay itself, Snyder's essay, is really about walking as much as about anything else. And I'm going to uh, quote, read something here in a rather long uh, paragraph. We learn a place and how to visualize spatial relationships as children on foot and with imagination. Place and scale must be measured against our bodies and their capabilities. A mile was originally a Roman measure of 1,000 paces. Automobile and airplane travel teach little that we can actually translate into a perception of space. To know that it takes six months to walk across Turtle Island slash North America, walking steadily but comfortably all day, every day, is to get some grasp of the distance, some appreciation of an aspect of our world. The Chinese speak of the four dignities, standing, lying, sitting, and walking. They are dignities in that they are ways of becoming fully ourselves, at home in our bodies, in their fundamental modes. I think that many of us would consider it quite marvelous if we could set out again on foot with a little inn or a clean camp available every 10 miles or so and no threat of traffic to travel all of Europe, all of China. That's the way to see the world in our own bodies. Now, in the context of our practice at Ancient Dragon, I think most places, You know, we think of these things as these four dignities as something that takes place in the context of formal practice. And and we very much focus on our particular ways of walking, kinhin, and and of course, zazen. Um, But... um, As the essay unfolds, Gary Snyder's essay unfolds, it's clearly not what he's talking about. He's, you know, it's not exclusive of those things, I'm sure, but he's, you know, he's talking about actually being out there walking and, you know, sitting. Um, The other two, uh, standing and lying down, we, you know, we tend not to get, they don't get a lot of attention um, in formal context. They're just not as relevant. Um, I think Sabuti too also has in mind something that could be considered more broad. You know, he has something broader in mind than this kind of formal standing, walking, that kind of thing. Red Pine, in his commentary um, on the Diamond Sutra, quotes somebody named Shifo, who says, quote, uh, the reason Sabuti asked these questions is because, scrolling down, because he realized that in the Buddha's everyday actions of wearing his robes, eating, washing his feet, and sitting down, he never stopped manifesting the marvelous workings of his true mind. Um, all the things he just described, the things that the sutra opens with. Red Pine also quotes someone named Sung Jao, another commentary. In the, contrast, in the question, Control was mentioned last. Why then is it dealt with first? And he answers, 
To stand is more profound and to control more superficial. Thus, although the profound question is placed first, since control is more superficial and easier to practice, it is answered first. So, you know, actually, when you read the text, it'll be, it might be hard to parse how any of what follows relates specifically to either of these things. Buddha does not talk about control. He does not talk about standing and walking and sitting and lying down. Um, he talks about, you know, he answers kind of in the negative, you know, what's it all about? It's about not producing the idea or the conception of a self being, uh, you know, there are four things, self being soul. You, you would know the kinds of things. <clears throat> um, and again, I want to say here in, in Sun Chao's thing, he says to stand is more profound. But I think here to stand also has to include uh, sitting, walking, and lying down. Um, it's it's our self, ourselves as embodying beings in the physical world. Um, <clears throat> oops, I just went too far here. Um, so as I said, uh, you know. It, Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. This is very awkward. Uh, As I said uh, before, uh, you know, you've got to read this for yourself to see what Buddha says. But Sung Chao's remark echoes something, I think, that Taigen and many other people say. Um, You know, if we do, in fact... um, I'm so sorry. This is not work. I've always, I, I mean, my machine is not very responsive and it's causing me a little bit of problem. Okay. Um, okay. You know, Sung Chao's remark saying the difficult is answered second. Um, that's why he talks about controlling the mind first. Um, it's answered second because it's actually more difficult to, to address. And it, you know, this is this. If we take, you know, the standing, sitting, and walking down that Buddha does um, as representing, in some sense, our lives off the cushion, um, and acknowledge, as Taigen, many other people do, then in some ways this can be more challenging to do. You know, it's more challenging to to manifest your practice in, in the comings and goings of daily life um, than it is in a practice center, say, in some ways, in other ways, not at all. But, and, but part of the reason for that is formal practice situations, sitting at the Zendu at Ancient Dragon, going to Tassahara. Those things are designed meticulously over millennia to support your practice and of course, the you know world per se is completely indifferent to it, um, and that that makes it a little different. Um, the Buddha's everyday life in the first paragraph of the sutra is described, as I said, putting on the robes, da 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 da. da. Um, you know, but I, I I think it's important to understand this is this is the Buddha's 
and his monks, this is their daily life. Um, it might not look like your daily life. It doesn't look like my daily life. I don't wake up in the morning and uh, put on my robe and go beg alms and do things as they describe. But I still have this daily life that's completely infused with the fundamental human realities of walking, standing, sitting, and lying down, completely undergirded by that. <clears throat> you know, just to, to again, to invoke Snyder, he says, many of us would consider it quite marvelous if we could set out again on foot. That's the way to see the world in our own bodies. Well, a lot of you will know that in recent years, I have made efforts with, you know, very varying degrees of success, given pandemics and deaths in my family and family of another person to do this. Um, but I've made, um, you know, I, I walked one of the routes of the Camino de Santiago some years ago, three years ago, and I've made two pandemic and death doomed attempts to to complete a, a route in Italy um, and returned most recently in October. Um, and when I came back, I was still kind of into what I was doing, you know, into this, into walking, basically. Um, and the world is shut down. I'm not, not seeing my friends. And, uh, you know, so I've wound up walking a lot. Um, I calculated that between April and mid-November, I was averaging, including the time in, you know, walking sort of more deliberately, um, more than 10 miles a day, about 12 miles a day. Um, of those six months or whatever, one month of that was this sort of pilgrimage kind of walking, whatever that might be. Um, and the other was just my usual everyday, everyday walking along the lake in Jackson Park and all the, you know, the blocks in every alley in the 16 square blocks surrounding my home. You know, I've been everywhere many, many times. Um, you know, this, this sequence came to an end in, uh, can't remember it was late October, early November. Um, on the first sleety day um, that I was out walking, um, I slipped on the moon bridge in Jackson Park and took a fall, um, which I may I may return to uh, afterwards because it actually is important here. Uh, but this is not the moment to 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 go to go further with it. And anyway, the consequences has been you know between being off my feet for three weeks and, um, and whether I've not been able to fully reestablish the pattern. Um, I, I managed to get out yesterday for a nice long walk at the expense of the ocean's talk. I'm looking out the window at the snow. Um, but today there was, I couldn't, um, anyway, I'm having a hard time getting back into it, but it's my full intention. Now I said, it's apology an apology for walking of sort, uh, a regular old walking, not kinging walking per se. Um, you know, and the reason for this, you know, there have been many occasions, you know, maybe this is just my paranoia, but I feel like I'm sort of put on the defensive about this. You know, I chafe a bit when people ask me, um, you know, did I have a great vacation? Um, uh, because, you know, it's, 
I don't, I, I've not been thinking about it in these terms. Or people will ask me, well, how can you justify, you know, walking three and a half or four hours a day or, you know, 10 days, 10 hours a day when you're some other place, you know, or they ask me when I'm going to get serious about something. Um, and in my view, in my view, I consider myself relatively serious. And, uh, you know, I've been simply living my life. And what I've been doing is no more or less serious than that. Um, and I get a little defensive. You know, I would never respond, for example, um, you know, most Americans spend seven hours a day on screen time. And more of half of that time is discretionary. Three hours and 16 minutes of that is scrolling on phones. How about you? You know, I would never do that. Uh, but it, it includes many of us and sometimes me, right? Um, but still, I feel pressure to justify. And um, it's actually quite similar uh, to the, the ways I've felt kind of put upon to, to justify my more form, formal Buddhist practice. Um, you know, the time I take to go to a session or an ango. Um, uh, you know, people don't understand it. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I've just felt that. Um, <clears throat> note that I said my more formal Buddhist practice, um, you know, ango sessions and stuff like that. Rightly or wrongly, I've come to regard all this walking um, that I have been doing um, as practice of a sort. And I, I want to explore that a little bit. Um, and it's particularly important practice for me now in the circumstances of pandemic because not being, not ever having fully warmed up to Zoom, you may have noticed I always have problems with it. Um, um, you know, I'm not doing as much, you know, it, it's had, it's had an impact on my, my sitting, my formal sitting practice. Um, but anyway, before I go into this a little more, I think it's, you know, I want to say something about, um, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of privilege involved in everything I've been doing. It is true that the way I live, where I live, uh, the kind of stuff I have in my apartment, um, kind of stuff, mostly the stuff I don't have in my apartment, I suppose, you know, it, it wouldn't be acceptable or amenable um, to many people. Um, but I've chosen it and it, you know, I have to acknowledge that it has afforded me many, I could even say in some ways bought me many freedoms that most people don't have. Um, good many of those have been built on I've been willing, what I've been willing to do without and, um, you know, having a high tolerance for solitude, you know, that kind of thing, um, is crucial to, um, acknowledge that I am blessed with financial resources that are completely commensurate with my needs and desires, you know, the absolute amounts of these things, you know, how much money I have, um, you know, what my needs or desires are, you know, the actual quantity magnitude is irrelevant. The, the point is that I have resources sufficient to meet those and, you know, even though many people may have more of this or that, uh, the experience of many people is not having enough. People are under, because of the life they choose to lead or are compelled to lead, they're under all kinds of pressures that I don't experience. Um, so this is privilege, even though I'm not particularly a wealthy person or anything like that. Um, 
Also, you have to acknowledge that our country has a really dark history of who gets to walk around where and when and all that kind of stuff. And then even more fundamentally, there's a privilege of simply having the health, the energy and two legs to walk around on in the way that I do. You know, many people do not. Um, I don't expect I will have it forever. And I, you know, never know, you know, thinking about this fall, you don't know when that's going to go. Um, so whatever this privilege is, it is precisely the privilege that, you know, has allowed the same privilege that has allowed me to attend sessions and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, it's neither more nor less defensible and it's neither nor more or less in needs of defense. It's, you know, all, all this needs to be said. It's, you know, and acknowledged. I mean, it's, it, it's not negligible. Um, I'm grateful. Um, okay. So legit, is it legitimate to think of what I've been doing as a form of practice or is it just some kind of self, you know, some kind of a delusion on my part? You know, I said that I'm, when I'm walking around, I'm simply living my life, you know, but can this be practice? First of all, um, as I said, I don't think Sabuti's question is particularly about formal practice situations or it is, but I think it can be read in a way that it's not exclusive of other kinds of things, you know, outside the rainy season, you know, the Buddha and Saputi would have been walking every day, you know, think of Basho, recall the, you know, metaphors from our own chants and things. I mean, just the ones that popped into my head when I was thinking about this light and dark oppose each other, like the front and back foot in walking, or if you don't understand the way right in front of you, how will you know the path as you walk? These are from Sandokai. Or let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk, innocent. Zoanka, which we just chanted. Okay, so, you know, obviously these things have huge uh, uh, metaphorical, you know, they're basically metaphor, right? But I would say um, these metaphors can work only because walking is or was such an integral part of everyday life, especially back in, well, until about a hundred years ago. Um, Schneider, you know, mentions a list he saw at Daitokuchi uh, from the 19th century and identified by ascending distance, the time that it would take to leave from Daitokuchi for a practicing monk to walk to his own home village. Um, and the lists range from one day to one month. And he says that each monk was expected to make that journey, typically made that journey, at least once a year, which is quite a bit of walking. You know, if you're walking one month here back, da 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 da. You know, there are the, you know, think of the, um, I mean, space, you know, think of the, think of the monks in Buddhist time. Uh, in together in in um, the rainy season and itinerant the rest of the year. Um, and it's really only, as I said, in the last hundred years or so that we've pretty much stopped walking very much. And this separates us profoundly and from, you know, essentially every other human being that has lived for what, say the last 99,900 years. Um, so after all that, why do I say that the two kinds of walking I do around the neighborhood and um, 
longer stretches on these ostensibly Catholic pilgrimage routes in other countries. Uh, why do I say that I can, what, that I come to think of them as modes of practice or at least potentially, um, and actually I have to, there are three modes because there's the walking I do by myself at home. There's, you know, walking by myself on privilege, uh, on, on, on pilgrimage. And then there's walking on pilgrimage, trying to do a pilgrimage with a companion. And the latter two, they're not the same or not, they're not, you know, there are very real differences in, in those activities, but it's not, it's too much going here. Um, so I'm just going to say walking at home, walking on pilgrimage. Okay. When we do, um, so why, why do I come to think of it this way? You know, when we do kinheen in the Zendo, you know, which is, you know, and usually during longer sittings, such as the session, it's not at all unusual for me to simultaneously have my mind actually quite firmly grounded in my mudra, in, in my breath, in my feet, all that stuff. Um, and at the same time, to experience an extremely heightened sense of space, the other people in the zendo, the objects in the room, all that. You've probably experienced this. You know, even the muted, you know, the muted colors, you probably know this too, in a zendo can be incredibly vivid and alive. Um, Chokim Trungpa used to talk about this, the relation between what he termed, if I recall, pinpoint awareness and panoramic awareness and how these work together, the way that when one settles, you know, one's mind, you know, basically he's talking about what now is called mindfulness. Um, uh, you know, when you have the, the very direct, focused, pinpointed awareness, that actually, it doesn't counter, it actually facilitates a, great, a greater sensitivity and awareness to everything that's going on around you. Um, you know, this is more than 40 years ago. So if I'm getting it wrong, maybe Douglas could, who probably knows this stuff too, from constraining us out and the questions and our answers. Um, but I think I'm basically accurate. Um, you know, anyway, I think, and I think, these two terms, pinpoint awareness, panoramic awareness, seem to be pretty useful to for describing what I actually seem to experience often in in Kinheen, even though the the lingo is Tibetan rather than Zen. Um, the thing is, I find very often um, my page is skipped again. I find very often uh, that I experience very much the same kind of things on my walks, my simple regular walks around the neighborhood, which I do alone about 95% of the time. You know, this happens in different ways, um, but it's not very difficult to access so far as I can tell. And, you know, you might actually want to experiment, um, you know, and uh, I'm not making any claim here to any kind of meditative or spiritual achievement or anything. Um, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's completely ordinary, very nourishing, uh, like beans and rice. I mean, it's, it's simple. Um, you know, and what it is, it's not like, it's not like kinheen, but it's, it's mindfulness, like, so as you can say, of walking. You know, I simply lower my eyes to the degree that 
um, I'm able to sort of manage safely given that I'm moving through a city, uh, uh, you know, and have to pay, have to be aware of my surroundings, of course. Um, and then I either bring a very sort of light touch awareness to the rhythms of my steps or the sensation of planting each step or a mental recitation um, of Enmei Juku Kanongyo. Actually, I really like to do this um, to the rhythm of my steps, that kind of thing. You know, and I suppose it's kind of a mindfulness thing, but I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't, that's not my language. Um, you know, and sometimes when I'm doing this, you know, it's, it's like the, the whole world seems to kind of open up, you know, the sense of space becomes vivid, energetic, and, you know, not to be too silly, but very, very spacious. Um, it's a very, very interesting thing. But it, like I said, you know, again, it's not, I'm not, don't get me wrong here. I think this is, can be a very ordinary thing. It doesn't indicate much in itself. Um, but it's something, as I said, nourishing and worthy of exploration. You know, and so far as I've been able to parse it, you know, any of these sort of mild, easy forms of channeling one's attention seem to have the capacity. I think what's going on is I think they interrupt the stream of thought, the talking to myself that I do all the time. You probably do too, you know, that occupies so much of my psychic space, you know, especially the dimension of it. That's, you know, this endless sort of self-referentiality, you know, and so, you know, so you put a little interference there and, um, and that kind of settles down. The chatter settles down. And then when this happens, that settles, you know, some other awareness that's probably been there all along comes more to the front. When the babble reemerges, you know, simply let it go and return again and again. It, you know, it's, it's sort of getting out from between yourself and the world and getting out of your own way, getting out of your own conversation, uh, one-sided monologic conversation. And, um, you know, in this respect, it's actually, it, there are many similarities to what happens in sitting practice. You know, and of course, that kind of process, the thing that happens, you know, in my walkway down here or on the lakefront, um, you know, of course, that can unfold if I'm walking from Irun to Santiago, right? Um, you know, this mode of longer day after day walking. And there are even, but in that context, there are even more resonance with aspects of what I have experienced in formal practice. You know, maybe everything but the actual sitting. You know, regular sitting, I've found, is pretty difficult to sustain in the context of that kind of walk, at least so far as I've known it thus far. Um, you know, you're not on a schedule, like in a monastery or in a session, but there's definitely a pattern to the day and you pretty much have to respect it and follow it um, if you're going to eat or you're going to sleep or those kinds of things. Um, and it won't leave you with much time for anything else uh, beyond waking, eating, walking, eating, walking, cleaning up, eating, maybe get a shower, sleeping. Um, and then you do it the next day. And sometimes there might be an opportunity or circumstance to sit. Oftentimes you're in a, well, not recently, but the first walk when there were actually many pilgrims, um, you know, you might be in a hostel, pilgrim's hostel with many people around you. It was difficult to find time and space.
Um, if something outside that pattern emerges, attending to it will call for creatively creativity or what's going on there. Um, creativity and patience, just like like say a Tassahara. Um, you know, if you tear your rope, you you know, it you'll have to figure out when you're going to be able to attend to that because there's not, you know, the repair your robe kind of time that's set aside comes only once every five days, right? Um, so there are similarities there too. Uh, everything's really simple, stripped down, uh, you know, for many hours a day. It's really quiet, even if you're around people. You know, this and the repetitive patterns of the days are not really that unlike. I mean, there are definite echoes, resonances with formal practice. It's not like a person, me specifically, won't run into all kinds of opportunities to have wonderful communications with people. Um, but for most hours of the day, even if you're walking with a friend, um, speech will be really minimal, functional. It's consultations about directions, the availability of water, place to sleep, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, this will change if you congregate in a hostel at the end of the day. I mean, you'll talk and you'll laugh, you'll have fun, you'll attend to your, you know, wet clothes, blisters, uh, whatever. Um, but people tend to fall silent when they are, one, you know, either enjoying the countryside or enjoying being in their own bodies or else, you know, having their consciousness pervaded by an awareness of painful legs, sore shoulders, that kind of thing. You know, both of which were, you know, very much daily experiences for me um, on that kind of a walk. And you just have to let it go and keep going. Um, you know, you have to um, walk through the pain, so to speak. I mean, this may uh, sound familiar to anybody who's spent time on a cushion, you know, uh, you know, pains and distractions and things arise and you just, you know, you just go with it. Um, you kind of have to, but one of the interesting things about this, you know, in that situation, in a temple or even on, you know, walking this kind of, situation you're there's a feeling of being supported by those whom you know to be experiencing things similarly moreover you know people are really inclined in uh, in my experience like on the santiago walk um to be you know they're inclined to be kind and to help you um to support you you know frictions can and do emerge, you know, and this also calls for patience and creativity. I mean, there's just a lot of parallel. Um, when, you know, you know, the times I've been at Tassahara, these two times, you know, there would be people whom I barely had an opportunity to speak to. You know, I might not remember their name. I might not know where they came from or they were going to be going next, you know, what they were doing to get behind the world. Um, often, Excuse me. Often I was more familiar with how their feet looked than their eyes because, in a, you know, because 
Um, yet I often had the feeling that I knew these people in important ways, even though I might not know anything about them per se. You know, simply being together in a challenging sort of self-chosen situation endows a sense of comradeship, you know, sangha, if you will, of being with people who are somehow one's own. Um, and even more, even more, though, is that sort of intimate familiarity that one comes to, you know, with things like, well, how does this person move? How do they interact with their environment? How do they respond to things? Um, how do, do they seem to go at things with a certain kind of energy or are they holding back? Um, there's this feeling actually of uh, knowing them well, even though you, I can't bring up a lot of faces at the moment. You know, one when one walks day after day in the same direction as other people, a very similar thing occurs. You know, there are many encounters, clusters form and dissolve. There are repeated meetings, um, shared situations and people. You get to know people, if not their names, where are they from, whether or not you even share a language. You know, and equally important, you know, which, again, sort of parallels not sharing a language and being in a place where you're not deploying your language or, you know, there are similarities there. Um, And equally important, uh, I think in this context, you know, no one who has these encounters, you know, comes to it with the, with the illusion that they have you pegged and vice versa. You know, at one level, even though there's this intimacy, you're strangers. And so there isn't this constant reinforcement you know, or the coercive constraint of being known. People do not, you know, when people come to you um, there's a there's a way in which we all um, intentionally or not live up to the perception of how we're being perceived by others, whether we are aware of it or not. Um, and so the opportunities when, you know, you know, when I, I'm currently the only people I have up here are Wade and Michael. Um, I really, really look forward to the time of seeing these guys again in person. Um, but I also acknowledge when I do, or when I meet any of you or anybody, um, um, there, uh, I will, to a certain degree, be boxed into and responding to the way they perceive me, and vice versa. And um, you know, so to get out of that, it presents this opportunity to see what happens in an, an encounter where pre-existing notions of each other and where one's own self-conceptions are, to a degree, mitigated. You know, this is, you know, theoretically possible at any time, but, you know, so far as I know, there are few situations that evoke it in the same way as this kind of walking or being in a monastery. <clears throat> it's the external correlate of mitigating the self-conception reinforcing babble I was talking about with, you know, in my other mode of walking where I, you know, sort of simplifying awareness and maybe doing the M.A. Juku Kanagyo, that, <clears throat> that kind of thing, excuse me. 
Okay, I'm going on really long. Let's finish it. Um, um, you know, there's a, you know, you have an opportunity to look at the, the self that arises in these situations when self-conception and coercive phenomenon of being known are taken out of the equation. You know, what is this? What is this? Um, do I like the self that I see arising here? You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, in a far-ranging um, oh, uh, book, recent book called In Praise of Walking, this guy named Shane O'Mara discusses what it must have been like for Utsi. This is the uh, guy who got frozen to death in the Alps 4,000 years ago or whatever it is. Um, big find for archaeologists and anthropologists. Um, and he asks, well, what would it be like for a modern person to walk long distances alone? And he says, I bet we would, we would see two different components of his mood. His moment-to-moment awareness, excuse me, his moment-to-moment mood would have reflected the ongoing challenges of such a walk being wet, too cold, or hungry and thirsty, being frustrated with the inconveniences of nomadic life. Where do I sleep? Where do I eat? Where can I go to the loo? But his long-term sense of well-being, as well as perhaps uh, consciousness itself, will have moved upwards, perhaps enduringly so. Now, I am not connecting, I'm not comparing the kind of walk I've been doing to Otsis or to Basho's or even to the monks of a hundred years ago going home. It, that would be absurd. But it does resonate and sound very familiar. I should also say, uh, yes, hunger, cold, wet, all that kind of stuff. And also beautiful sunny days and, you know, beautiful views. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not asceticism. It's not self Mortification. Don't get that idea. Um, uh, you know, all these dramas unfold in a very real, but in a contained way, with guardrails, with others peeping an eye on you. You know, and this too really resonates with formal sitting situations, which can be very difficult and destabilizing. And it's important to have that. This idea of a container, right? Uh, whatever the intensity of the challenge, for the most part, you're going to be safe and protected to explore your experience. Um, somebody died on the that first walk, but that's very unusual. Uh, anyway, you know we're unfortunate. I'm here. I am in my shell, in my home, and I'm glad it's cold out. But there's no doubt that you know when I'm here. My life is books, it's screens, um, and even being in, uh, you know, books, screens, even friends of, and, you know, or a lover. I mean, it can, it's, it can be limiting to the full range of our kind of sensual sense of embodiedness and embeddedness, um, you know. I mean, it, here it tends to contract to vision and speech at the expense of the other senses and capacities, um, and those uh, wither to a certain degree. Um, the Omara book that I mentioned um, is, is very... It 
you know, he, it's very wide ranging. He's looking at the physical acts of walking, um, uh, you know, and he's the physical act of walking, but he's not only talking about how it functions f- physically, but also cognitively, psychologically, socially, politically, on and on. It's very interesting. Um, and in every case, with regard to these things, he finds the practice of walking um, in his review of the scientific literature to be um, completely, uh, completely beneficial and not only beneficial, but dramatically so. And while the psychological, you know, psychological balance, cognitive fluidity, loose limbs, you know, all this kind of stuff. These are not the aims of Zazen or practice. Um, but minimally, we can say, they, can say that they don't hurt, right? I mean, uh, Zazen is not about being smart or being clever or being physically abled or, or any of that stuff, not directly, but those things, walking, standing, sitting, lying down, those are, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of our daily life. And Zazen is about that. It is about that. Gary Snyder, you know, says that walking is called a dignity because it is a fundamental mode of being fully ourselves and a fundamental mode of appreciation, appreciating the earth and our place in it, which is only facilitated by the uh, support that our senses and our bodies, our minds are given by this simple and ancient and fundamental practice. Um, You know, it says it's our fundamental mode of being fully ourselves. Well, this sounds familiar, you know, Suzuki Roshi says that some somewhere that when we become fully ourselves, Buddha becomes Buddha. These echoes with formal practice aren't complete, but they're real, they're useful. And as I said, when I'm actually walking, sitting practices recede somewhat. Precept practice will be whatever it is or isn't in the rest of my life. Um, You know. So is this the same as practice? Well, well, no. You know, practice the way you think about it is not. Um, it is no more the same as full practice than, say, a runner's high, which may be a kind of samadhi, you know, is, you know, it's no more. You know, a runner's high shouldn't, it's kind of samadhi, but in my view shouldn't be conflated with the samadhis we have access to in Zazen. But at the same time, it's not completely different either. And while one may see and enjoy many things along the way, or in my case recently, spend a full week gawking in Rome, uh, being a tourist, a literal tourist, these things are truly incidental, like a particularly tasting or enjoyable meal in the Zendo. Not the point at all, however cool it might be. And likewise, um, I don't want to overstate what happens in my daily walks either. On a given day, I would love to walk and chat with a friend if one were available. And even alone, most of the time, I'm not doing these things. But still, I can't deny the experiences that I have often or their effect on my sense of what it is to be 
this person walking on actually this particular planet, nowhere else, you know? And I bet those monks, you know, when they were walking around between Angos or to their home villages, da 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 they weren't doing kini all the time either. And they probably missed some days of, of Zazen. Um, and if they wanted to have an evening with sake or they wanted to meet an old sweetheart, this is probably the time it would happen. And we, we know these things happen all the time, you know, these stories. Um, but would I say these monks are not practicing? No, I, I, I wouldn't want to say that myself anyway. So maybe all this stuff, um, Maybe it's not practice, but I would say I have evidence that it's not not practice. We've heard that light and darkness oppose one another, like the front and the back foot in walking. I sometimes question whether this is the best way to put that, uh, whether the character involved is best translated that way. I don't know what the character is. I've never checked it out. But, you know, we can think that this thing opposes this or that other thing. But when I actually look down at my feet when I'm walking, which I've had plenty of occasion to do, I don't observe opposition. Instead, I see my left foot not only supporting my right foot as it swings forward for the next step, but actually supporting my whole body, you know, my whole being. So maybe these sort of oppositions between life on foot and time on the cushion uh, can safely be thought about in the same way. That was very rough. Um, I apologize and very long. So I'm going to stop. Thank you. And I'm going to fiddle with my phone again because I want to at least see the list of who's here. So but I... Would you Neozong. like to tell you who's here, Neozong? Uh sure. Oh, now, so I, I actually I see when when you speak, Hogatsu, or when Taigan speak, you come up, even though I don't see the full gallery. So, so I will see. Just anybody wants to ask a question, I will see you. We don't need to read the list. So, Neozong, thank you very much for talking about the inner dynamics of uh, walking. I need to say, though, that in China and in Japan and Tibet, and actually for Native Americans, pilgrimage, a formal pilgrimage like you did in Spain and Italy, is very much a, a, a traditional Buddhist practice. Very, very, very important oh. Buddhist practice. Not only not only done by monks, but by uh, popular uh, by people by pop, by people d- devotees, late to devotees. So. There are, for example, in Japan, various pilgrimage routes. Uh, in the island of Shikoku, there's a long one that's got 84 temples, and it takes so, a few months. 88. Uh, I did one. 88, yeah. I did, I did one in Kyoto um, uh, that, that just took an afternoon going up and down a mountain to 33 different uh, shrines for the 33 forms of Kanon. But just that this is a really traditional major, major, major mode of Buddhist practice. Absolutely. We don't know it in American Buddhism yet, but it's in, in, in Japan and in China and in, in, I'm sure in Korea and Tibet, it was like the pilgrimage routes that you did in Spain and Italy. It's very, very important. Um, I'll just also mention another book about 
Walking by Rebecca Solnit, who's a practitioner in our lineage, and a great essay is called Wanderlust, A History of Walking. And she's talking in that book mostly about walking in the European uh, traditions. Uh, at any rate, um, I don't know when pilgrimage like this, walking pilgrimage like this will be part of American Buddhism, but um, it's very much traditional. And uh, so uh, thank you for for getting into the inner dynamics of that practice. Absolutely. It is completely traditional. And in fact, um, well, I will mention that Rebecca Solnit does um, speak about a, a pilgrimage in North America. I believe it's in Mexico. Um, and uh, when I started to think about this talk, I thought, wow, maybe I should start pulling out books that I have about walking and pilgrimage and all these things within a minute I had that book and others, you know, pile literally two feet tall. And so I decided not even to open them. It would have been right. a disaster. I just, the three books I mentioned, I used only because those passages came to mind without looking at the books. Um, I would have gotten totally off track, even worse. Um, also, I should mention, I, I do, um, I actually have experience of being on Buddhist pilgrimage uh, six weeks around Korea, visiting hermitages and uh, hermitages and temples with my former teacher. But again, as you have often told me, you can only say so much um, in a in a talk, regardless of its worthiness of being said. Thank you very much. Uh, other people, uh, uh, wait, maybe you can help me call on people. Uh, comments, responses, uh, questions for Nyozan, please. And when you speak, Nyozan will see you. <laughs> Hi, Nyozan. Hi, Hogetsu. <laughs> I kept thinking of Thich Nhat Hanh's, I think, book, Peace is Every Step. And I think he was a really wonderful uh, walker. <laughs> and I thought about, I met my Zen teacher on a walk. Yeah, that's yeah. You had a, you tell us about that. Tell people about that. <laughs> so, uh, in the eighties, climate change was important, but also so were uh, and what remains to be an important political, socio political issue is uh, nuclear weapon proliferation. So you know there aren't that many things besides a virus that can wipe out the planet besides climate change and nuclear weapons. So I was part of something called the Great Peace March. So that was like a march across America, but it was a year and we lived in tents. And at the end, we walked across the country doing community building and education across the country. But when we ended that, we were, uh, we had money left over and people would be like, why don't you go march in Russia? So we did. <laughs> and we invited Soviets to come to America. And we had this like road trip, which was a lot of walking and then road tripping with a caravans of Russian Soviets, actually Soviets from all over the Soviet Union, which now is broken up. But my teacher ended up being the driving a kitchen truck and we had making meals for ourselves. So one day uh, I was on the side of the road and this monk picks me up in a school bus driving a kitchen 
<laughs> outside <laughs> on the road and off we go on the march and I asked for Zazen instruction. But what impressed me wasn't just the fact that we walked a lot together, but that how he was serving the community and supporting it by helping organize people to make food and how we came together as a community. The Many of the Soviets brought their own sausages and vodka and we were like totally vegetarian. And like there was this, but on the walk, you became one, you know, with whoever you're walking with. It was like a pilgrimage. And then we did these ones in, you know, from Moscow to Leningrad and all over. So I have a little experience with this as a practice, but also as a a form for community, you know, whether it's a Buddhist community or world community. So I thought it's a very wonderful community building. And, you know, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for a a little walk and a monk in a tent and a truck. Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, that time. The other response I had was 24-7 Zazen, Nyozan. You know, 24-7. So standing, sitting, walking, hanging out, you know. I I said something like um to someone once, and I said, Well, how do you approach someone you meet on the street? And they said, like you approach an altar when you're making an offering. <laughs> but I think that's how you walk, right? Well, you try, you know, with varying degrees of success, but yeah. Yeah, you try to approach an altar, you know, sometimes the incense isn't lit or, you know, you run into difficulties. So <laughs> anyway, thank you, Neosan. I think it's walking is so wonderful and may we all walk together. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, it, it, it makes, it brings to mind for me that, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, we all have this potentiality at any time in our daily life to, to um, bring our full selves. Um, but it's difficult to do uh, in, you know, like it was difficult for me to do yesterday, um, walking around getting my groceries. Uh, uh, and it's completely supported in a, in a monastic situation. And I think this kind of walking is, is kind of a middle ground between the two because there is support, uh, but it's not enforced in quite the same way. And that makes you call upon yourself to find a way to meet the situation. In other words, it gives you a, a mechanism by which you can start to take what happens on the cushion into the rest of your life, which, of course, is a big part of the point. You know, it's like Zazen really isn't about Zazen. It's about it's about me and it's about you and it's about Gaia, you know? David Ray I had know hand up. I think David Ray had his hand up before. I did. Thank you so much, Nyozan, for that talk. I have a question about um well, uh there the the thought that there are at least two different like modes of walking or kinds of walking, and I think there might. I think these are distinguished in some languages. There's there's walking to go for a walk. There's walking to be walking. That is on the one hand, and then there's walking somewhere. There's going somewhere, and um, 
I find that those those two modes of walking feel so different. Sometimes I try to sometimes I try to turn walking to some place into in into just going for a walk, and I realize no, I, I I can't because it's a different thing. So I, I wonder if you have thoughts about those experiences. Well, I they are they are different things, and you know I I I don't know if I did it. I sometimes do uh, do a kind of air quotes thing when I say I was on pilgrimage. And the reason for that is, for example, I'm not Catholic, um, and honestly, uh, it's, it's not at all important for me to arrive in Santiago or Rome. Uh, it is for very, very many people. I mean, they have a goal. They have a destination. Uh, but for me, uh, the destination or the goal really doesn't extend much beyond what I'm doing that day. Does that respond at all, David? That's that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Thinking thinking about um, the 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 way that the destination of walking can can make the walking be a, a pilgrimage. I mean, I was thinking of just you know the difference between walking to the store and then just going to go you know walking on, along the lake shore the lake shore as opposed to walking to the store and how different those two feel. But yeah. but that's interesting too. The the, the the element of pilgrimage does put a uh, but it puts a it puts a kind of you know a sacred destination onto it. Thank you. Michael. I just wanted to ask at the very beginning, it might have been the Mountains and Waters Sutra, uh, or, um, yeah, Sutra. At the very beginning, you mentioned in uh, Snyder's book, uh, he is referencing a Dogen essay that you very much recommended uh, that we read. Yes. And I w- would like you to repeat the name of that so I can look it up. Yes. The, the um, Sutra is, is called in. In Japanese, Sansui Kyo. In English, it's most commonly translated as Mountains and Waters Sutra. And um, <laughs> do you know it? Uh, I, uh, well, I'd, I'd heard of it and just now thinking about it, Sansui Kyo. Yes. Those are yes. some very, and it's, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's widely available in a number of translations and they're, um, in the last few years have been some commentaries written in English. I've not read them, but uh, Mountains and Waters Sutra, uh, you can Google it and I'm sure you can find, you know, at least the first version to read within two minutes after we leave here. There's so um, somebody else, Matt already found it. So thank you. <laughs> um, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the little meme that went around about sauntering and the idea of saunter, sauntering as originally being uh, saunter. Where are you going? A la saunter, to the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. taking a little stroll as opposed to uh, hiking, as opposed to walking for exercise or for, for work. And it's, you know, this the serious thing. It's, no, you're walking to walk. Yeah. This is the concept I always enjoyed. Actually, I'd never heard of that, and uh, I'm delighted to know it. And... Uh, I'm going to have it available to further tangle my thoughts next time I talk about these things. I don't know whether that's the real etymology of song. Okay. But <laughs> I will investigate. I'm into etymology. 
nice to see. I don't think I've met you before, so nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Other comments or questions, please feel free. We'll get Sue again. Couldn't find my unmute button. That's a disaster on Zoom. Um, one of the things, you know, speaking to David Ray's idea of different verbs, one of the things I did learn from Russians and, and Europeans that Russians have a verb for this kind of walking, just walking around, but they call it gulyat, but but there's you see everywhere Russians, and you still see this on the lakefront, walking arm in arm, males and females, wherever, but this kind of walking together just for a stroll around town, you could say, or anywhere. And it's such a beautiful practice. I remember the first time, you know, Americans aren't used to being so physically connected to each other. And so especially same sex, if you're a heterosexual person. Um, and so there's this sense of having, you know, another woman put her arm in, you know, connected to my arm and walk here. And it was so natural. Like you couldn't say no. Yeah. You know? And there's an intimacy in that. And I mean, this isn't maybe how you're walking around Hyde Park or Italy or Spain, but, but I think there's something about like, what would it be like if we actually touched each other in this way, you know, and shared walking in such an intimate way. So, it, I, and this bouillot was part of that, you know, verb talking about something like that. Thank you. You know, as, as Tygen uh, pointed out, there, there's actually a surprisingly voluminous literature about walking and the different ways in the people do it. And it's, and it's fascinating. And, um, and that's definitely part of it. Listen, we are going late. So I want to say two more things. Um, first, I want to apologize for having gone on so long and, and for the fact that um I'm not well set up to, if I had time, I would have put this on paper and I wouldn't have had all the trouble in my computer and stuff. So I thank you for your patience as ever. Um, also, I, I said something about this fall and I want to resume that just a, a brief comment. Um, so I took this fall um, and um, well, let me back up the end of the diamond sutra sort of, ends essentially with a very, very powerful statement about the uh, transience of everything. Uh, impermanence surrounds us. Um, and the examples are one of, are ones of, uh, where's, where's the, of great, you know, great physical beauty. I took the book out with the rest of my pile. Um, you know, like a dream, like a flash of lightning, like a dewdrop, you know, all these kinds of images, transience and beauty. Um, and, I, you know, that, that relationship is worth exploring. But on this walk, I felt it was a, it was a messy day in many ways. Um, nobody was in the park. Nobody was around. I was hurt. Um, my... Um, it was very, very painful. Um, and I sat on the, in the slush for about 
20 minutes hoping somebody might come by and be able to help me. Um, you know, and I was actually thinking, oh, gosh, this might be serious enough that I should. I, I never walk with my phone, never walk with my phone. Um, you know, I thought, well, maybe somebody will come by and, you know, I'll, should I have them call somebody? But I've had similar injuries and I had the sense that even though it was incredibly painful, um, it probably wasn't that serious. So I took about probably close to an hour dragging myself the three quarters of a mile home. And it was really, like I said, it was pretty intense, but I thought this will probably be okay. Um, so I iced it and stayed off it completely for three days and, um, you know, compression, aspirin, all that kind of stuff. And sure enough, the most intense of the pain uh, went away within three days. Um, but then I actually looked at my leg and very quickly, the, my entire thigh was turning, you know, blue and green and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't hurting as much, but then my knees and hips were, my knee and hip were hurting. So, so I stayed off it for three weeks. But I bring all this up because in the context of this kind of intense pain. I mean, it's pretty close. I've had some bad situations and this was up there, um, even though it wasn't not life threatening, but in the very midst of this, there was a kind of, I would say a kind of realization, this intense, intense sense. I mean, I didn't use this language, but yeah, like a dream, like a dewdrop, like a flash of lightning, it could all be gone in a moment. And that if I could get myself home, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be treating it as casually as I sometimes do. Of course I do. Of course I am. But I mean, it was a very, very strong feeling of almost gratitude, uh, you know, that there's this beautiful world and I have this vehicle to meet the world in and it could be gone in a flash as it is for millions every day in the world, you know? So, so, you know, it was inspiration to try, try, try to step up, try to meet my life, try to appreciate my life, try to appreciate all of you. So anyway, I'm going to stop there. Um, I think it's too late to say more.